Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My guest this week is Graham Nash. One of Atlantic Records' most famous artists, Graham started his career by co-founding the English pop-rock group The Hollies. In the late 60s, he partnered with David Crosby and Stephen Stills to form Crosby, Stills & Nash, which later also included Neil Young. The recordings released by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young remain some of the best-loved songs of all time, including songs written solely by Graham, Our House, Teach Your Children, Just a Song Before I Go, and Wasted on the Way. Graham's a two-time inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and won a Grammy with Crosby, Stills, and Nash in 1970. This podcast contains my 2018 conversation with Graham. We spoke about his amazing career and his new album at the time, Over the Years. It contains his best-known songs and 15 previously unreleased demo recordings dating back to 1968. So now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Graham Nash. a simple man So I sing a simple song I've never been so much in love I never hurt so bad at the same time Welcome. I'm here. <laughs> Graham came a long way. He now lives in Manhattan. So yeah, It's a long way from the East Village. There you go. So let, let's start in the beginning. Okay. <laughs> Your mom yes. was relocated during World War II, is that correct? Yeah, what happened is that uh, I come from a small town just outside of Manchester, and it's almost like, uh, you know, how Brooklyn is to New York. It's kind of the same place, but it's not really. Um, and it was called Salford. And what used to happen is that when ladies got pregnant in Salford and Manchester, they were evacuated outside the bombing area because we were being bombed constantly, right? I mean, seriously. And uh, I never understood the wisdom of evacuating a lady to have a baby for two weeks to avoid the bombs and then send them right back to the bombing <laughs> area. Didn't make any sense to me. I was born in 1942. I became interested in, in music when I was 13 years old. There used to be a, a radio station called Radio Luxembourg, and it came from Luxembourg in, in Europe. And when the weather cooperated, huh. we could actually hear it. Crackly and BBC and, you know, oh, there it is. Oh, da, da, lost it again. Anyway, I used to be listening to, uh, uh, to American rock and roll from when I was a kid. And I loved it. And I wanted to be a musician. And for my 13th birthday, I had passed an exam at school. Uh, and my parents were pretty pleased about that. And uh, asked me wh what I wanted, from, what present I wanted for my uh, 13th birthday. And I, I wanted a bike. I wanted a bicycle. I had a friend, Fred Moore, who had a bicycle. And from Manchester, he rode all the way on his bike across, down past London, across the channel on the ferry to Bad Nauheim in Germany, where Elvis was. And he met Elvis briefly for a couple of minutes. On right? his bicycle. I, yeah. And I wanted to do that. So I wanted a bike, but we couldn't afford a bike because there were a lot of money in those days. So. My second choice was a cheap acoustic guitar, 
That was probably my first metaphysical choice. Have you ever thought what would have happened if you got your first choice? I'd be, I'd be Lance Armstrong, <laughs> man. <laughs> do you remember the first song that you, that stuck with you on Radio I do. Luxembourg? It was called Bebop Alula by Gene Vincent. And uh, it was a 78, and I traded it from my friend Fred Marsden at school because I had toast. I mean, physical toast. That was, that, I'm, I'm not kidding. And he, he liked my toast, and we exchanged two pieces of bread for this Bebop Alula record, which I sat on the next day, which pissed me off, I got to tell you. But Bebop Alula was the first one. Well, Bebop Alula, she's my baby. Bebop Alula, I don't mean my baby. Bebop Alula, she's my Amazing. And then when did you meet Alan Clark? I was six years old. I was at school in Mr. Burke's class when the door opened and an older lady with this young child came into the classroom. Mr. Burke was talking to them, and he turns around to the rest of us, and he said, okay, this is Harold Clark. He's uh, moving from Broughton, which is another area of town, to this school. Where's he going to sit? Well, it just so happened that the only seat that was vacant was right next to me, and we became friends ever since, since I was six years old. And I'm 76 now, so it means that it was 70 years ago. Alan and I... Uh, we're in the Hollies, of course, and uh, he's been my friend all this time. Amazing. Yeah. Do you remember bonding over music with him for the first time? Absolutely. What happened is that uh, we used to sing stuff together, you know, folk songs and some Everly Brothers songs. And, and then Alan uh, joined a band, the Riverside Rockets, and I didn't see him for about a year. And he was my friend, right? So I met him one day on the street and he had a an electric guitar case. And I only had an acoustic, you know, an electric guitar, wow. You're, you're, you're really in a band, aren't you? Anyway, we, we got back together, and on November the 19th, in 1959, a man called Carol Levis, who was a Canadian promoter, would go to towns and get 10 local acts, have them perform a song, come back at the end of the show, all stand on stage, and he put his hand above the act's head, and whoever got the most applause won. And me and Clark, we did It's Only Make Believe by Conway Twitty. And we were just two teenagers, right, with two acoustic guitars, and we won that night. But it was a very interesting night from this point of view. Alan Clark and I later formed the Hollies. There was a guy on stage called Freddie Garrity, who became Freddie and the Dreamers. There was a man called Ron Wycherley, who was a Liverpool singer, who became Billy Fury. He was a kind of an Elvis kind of impersonator. And these four kids from Liverpool called Johnny and the Moondogs. On the same night? On the same night. And you so won. I, uh, actually, we did. You know what the truth is, though? I don't think we would have won had the, the Beatles, that's who, who they became, um, they had to catch the last bus back to Liverpool, but the last bus was like at 9.30 at night, and the judging was like at 10 at night after the concert, right? So they had to leave, and by the way, 
That was the night that John Lennon saw someone's electric guitar and picked it up and walked away with it. <laughs> Not a lot of people know that, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so um, me and Clarky were off and running. We, so, were, we were two kids, and one night, uh, uh, we were doing, no, an, an afternoon at the Bodega Coffee Shop, me and Clarky were, were singing, and this kid comes up to him and he goes, you know what? You need bucking. I said, what? You need bucking. I said, oh, what do you mean, bucking? He said, no, Pete bucking. You need Pete bucking. <laughs> I said, why do we need Pete bucking? He said, he's an electric guitar player. He has the only Fender Stratocaster in the north of England. He can play every single solo that you ever loved. Every Elvis solo, every Ricky Nelson solo, every Buddy Holly solo. He knew it all. So we went and Pete joined our band and we, we, we became the Four Tones, even though there were five of us. <laughs> Don't ask. And... As part of, uh, there was an exhibit of all my stuff at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a couple of years ago, and one of the exhibits is this little 45 Shapes uh, record, which was the first time that we ever recorded ourselves in, in uh, 1960. That's uh, the four so, tones. Yeah, the four tones. Amazing. So Ricky and Dane Young were before that? Yes, we were before that. That was you and, and that Alan. was me and Alan. We had this this uh, this manager of this uh, this group called Kirk Daniels and the Deltas, and he had this wonderful idea that we we, we could be everything. I, I got to tell you, and there are photographs to prove it, although you'll never see them, of, of me and Alan Clark and the rest of the band in like caveman outfits, <laughs> you know. And so we would do that, and then we would take those clothes off, and we'd come back as Ricky and Dane Young, and then about, you know, a half hour later, the band would come out, and we'd be Kirk Daniels and the Deltas. But yeah, Ricky and Dane. Don't know why we chose those names. <laughs> I have no clue. So was it the Deltas that became the Hollies? Yes, basically, yeah. And the name, the Hollies, there are multiple stories about where that name came from. It was around Christmas time, so perhaps that, Buddy Holly, perhaps that. That's it. Both of them. Okay. We're, yeah. We're right. The Hollies were formed in early December of 1962. And we, we had been rehearsing and we had like a bunch of songs that we, we could sing. And so we were going to play this, uh, this show at the 2J's Coffee Bar, which later became the Oasis, which was a very famous club in the north of England, uh, from which Oasis took their name, of course. And we didn't have a name. Now, our drummer... Don Rathbone, his father owned a mortuary. So Don, the drummer, had a van. And that's why he was in the band, <laughs> because he had a van. I mean, he wasn't a great drummer, but it was okay, you know, but he had a van, so we, right? So the compare comes up and he was, you know, like gathered by the side of the stage and he said, okay, I'm about to introduce you, who are you? Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, the deadbeats, you know, because of the mortuary, you know, and I don't know, right? But then we thought, no, the Deadbeats is not, not right. And it was Christmas time, and we really, truly loved Buddy Holly, and we called ourselves the Hollies, and that was it. Amazing. And then how long after that did you audition for Parlophone? In the cavern in Liverpool, they, uh, they used to do lunchtime shows between 12 and 1 for all the, the school girls, I mean, the working girls, rather, and some kids, uh, mainly girls that would come down and see a show instead of having lunch. They'd, they'd buy a, get a sandwich and that would be their lunch while they watched uh, 
the cabin. So one day, um, I, I don't know whether you ever saw any of the Hollies, you're all too young, but we were a pretty decent band. We had great energy and we were a happy band, I must tell you. And this guy comes up to us after the show and he's got glasses on, he's about five foot six. And his name was Ron Richards. And he said, you know, I'm an A&R man from uh, EMI, which was the record label then, and uh, Parlophone in, in particular. And would we, would we like to go down to London to audition for EMI? Well, of course, of course we did. So we went down there. We passed the audition, as John said. And um, we cut our first album in an 90 minutes. We did our 45 set you know, a 45-minute set of our hot shit and did it twice, and that was the record. Just to show you, uh, to put it in context, Daylight Again, the record I made with David and Stephen many years ago, made it through two Super Bowls. <laughs> so you can see that a 90-minute album was, uh, was pretty good. The album that you, that first album that you cut for Parlophone, those were all covers, right? Basically, yes. Did you consider yourself a songwriter back then? No, not at all. We didn't consider ourselves a songwriter until we found out that between every A-side on a 45 single, there's got to be a B-side. And the B-side used to make as much money as the A-side occasionally. And everybody else was making this money, and we thought, well, shit, we, why don't we put something on the B-side? Why don't we make some money? And that's how we started writing, purely monetarily. Amazing how it starts. Yeah, what no kidding. It, um, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yes. One of the songs that you played in your first audition for Parlophone became your first single. Yeah, it's called uh, Ain't That Just Like Me. It's a, a coaster song. Lieber and Stoller, right? Right. Uh, Maurice Williams' Zodiac, I think. Oh, no, that, that was, was Stay. Stay. That right. was Stay, yeah. The first one was, uh, yeah, with this song, it started. Mary had a little lamb. The fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, everybody, and then it starts off in a well, ain't that dum, dum, just like me? And this fast little, almost, obviously then there was no cocaine, but it sounded almost <laughs> like we'd been dosed for a, a month. Mm. The, the songs that you cut, were those chosen for you by the label, or did you choose them yourself? We, we you know... When you're four, five kids from north of England that were supposed to do what your dad did and go down the mine or go into the mill, uh, when we went down to London to record, we, we trusted this man. And he, he had a great ear. Ron Richards had a great ear. He had ear. worked with the Beatles a little bit, right? Yes, he did. Well, his partner was George Martin, of course, at Air London. And um, Ron was so on top of what would be a hit. Tony Hicks, uh, our lead guitar player in the Hollies, a really great guitar player, he's the one that would go around to public houses and saying, you know, we're the Hollies and we've made some, just some records and stuff. Do you, what songs do you have? And he would, he would choose them. To the know? publishing house. Yeah. Was your second single a cover of the Coasters as well? Yeah, Searching? it was Searching. So crude, right? But they had great energy, those, those so early what singles. Going, what was going through your mind at the time? You were a kid, you're playing with your friends, and you're recording hey, with a guy who wait a second. We, we, were, we were doing a radio show on the BBC, and we were walking towards uh, the studio, and th there was uh, two guys putting in a, a giant uh, shop window, you know, like the size of that thing, right? But they had a little radio with them, and our fucking song came out of the radio for the first time. And I got to tell you, as a musician, hearing yourself on the radio are two things. One, wow. And secondly, we made it. <laughs> We're on the radio. 
That's how it happened. I'm telling you. Somebody sent me a CD about three years ago of 60 tracks of the Hollies on the BBC. Now, you have to understand something. The BBC was live. So you couldn't fuck up the intro and then say, can I do this again and start again? It was live. You had to go, right? The engineers at the BBC were brilliant because the sound on these records from all those years ago, 55 years ago, it was amazing, totally amazing. And so we had a lot of hits with the Hollies. When the first album came out, it was a big hit. Yes. It was 1964 when that album came out. Good. So... <laughs> That was the height of Beatlemania, too, wasn't it? Yep. So what was it like? You're having hits. They're having hits. You, you know in your mind that John was the one who stole the guitar that night. You're keeping <laughs> right. that secret. Right. That must have been a crazy time. It was crazy. I remember we played, uh, we played the Twisted Wheel in, in Manchester the same night that the Beatles played at the Oasis. And after the show, you know, every pub shuts down. 10.30 at night, whatever it is, but obviously a lot of people want to go drinking after that, so you would find a private club that had the license to be able to sell drink after 11 o'clock or something. And the Hollies and the Beatles were in, in this club. We were drinking together. John said that they were going to go down the next day and record, but he didn't know the words to a song called Anna, which they wanted to do. And I did. And I, I, I showed John the words to Anna, which they recorded the next day. Whose song was that? Um, Arthur Alexander, I think. So yeah. You showed it to him and he went down and cut it. Yeah. They went down and cut it the next day. Anna, you come and ask me, girl, to set you free, girl. You say he loves you more than me, so I will set you free. The Beatles opened a lot of doors. In a way, there was this like imaginary line right through the middle of England. Everybody south of that in London spoke the Queen's English and they were all posh. We were peasants to those people, except when the Beatles hit. And when the Beatles hit, everybody down there started to talk like Yanks, talk like Liverpudlians. They all wanted to talk, not the Queen's English, but the new language that was coming down, grotty, you know, uh, fab gear, all this new language of, of the Beatles. And they opened up so many doors and we all ran through it. They opened up an incredible door because every, everybody wants to make money, right? And as soon as the Beatles hit and started making a fortune, uh, you know, the A&R people were saying, well, go back up to Liverpool and see what else is there. There's got to be other bands like that. Come on, let's go. And, and they opened up an incredible amount of doors and we all ran screaming through it. Was there competition between the Hollies and the Beatles? No. No. We were all just happy not doing what our dad did. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not kidding. Very simple. So after that first album, more and more releases and more and more hits. And yes. most of them were still covers. Just One Look. Yes. Uh, and Here I Go Again. Yep. And if you I listen, can't let go, all that right, stuff. Right, I can't let go too. If you listen to those songs, they're very much of that era. They sound yeah. like mid-60s English pop. Yes. When you started writing songs, did you write uh, like a song like We're Through? Did you write that with these other songs in mind because you wrote what you were playing? Or were you saying, 
I'm going to do things a little differently now that I'm writing this song. We're Through was the very first single that we wrote. You know, and we were always trying, obviously, you, you know, you write the B-sides, you always want to write the hit, right? You know, and We're Through was the very first song that the Hollies ever wrote. I should be better off without you You take a pride in making me blue That is a song that was written by the band, but credited to L. Ransford. Correct. Can you tell everybody who L. Ransford was? My grandfather's name. And why why'd you use his name and not your name? Um, I'm not sure, really. <laughs> uh, I, I would start a song, and then Alan would add something, and Tony would, or Tony would start a song, or Alan would, you know, we did it between us, all three of us, but, you know, it was like uh, Graham Nash, Alan Clark, and Tony Hicks. That didn't even fit on a 45, you know? So we wanted to just make it easier. So we thought, well, let's just make up a, 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 a name and that nice short word and it'll be fine. And that was my grandfather's name. As long as the publishing money went to you and not to him. Oh, yes. Okay, good. <laughs> he was way dead at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so you're having all this success in England, but America took a couple of years? We first came to America in 1965 and played the Paramount Theater here in Times Square. That's where Elvis played, it's where Buddy Holly played. It's, it, it, it's an, it was an incredible, incredible building. Little Richard was the, was the main star on, on the show. Obviously, we wanted to watch Little Richard play, so we did. And we're standing on the side of the stage, and as they're coming off, there's an argument going on. I'm fucking Little Richard. Don't you ever fucking upstage me again, playing your fucking guitar behind your head, playing your guitar with your fucking teeth. Don't ever. And they, this argument went 10 floors up. Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Just another night at the Paramount. <laughs> so the Hollies' first hit in America was Look Through Any Window. Right. Our first manager was called Michael Cohen. I know, not Trump's lawyer, please. <laughs> oh, no. Was Michael Cohen, and he owned a, a clothing store in Stockport, and I, I worked there. He came up to me one day and he said, you know, I have this neighbor, this woman, and she keeps coming to me and saying her son writes songs, and would the Hollies go down and check him out? He said, do me a favor, just go, pat, listen, pat the guy on the head, get this woman off my back. It's our manager, we want to do him a favor, so we did that. So we went to this house in, in Manchester. It was incredibly neat. The plastic was still on the couch. And there's this little 15-year-old kid called Graham Goulman. And we said, we walked in, we said, and we'd had a couple of hits, you know. And we said, you know, what have you got, kid? I hear you're a songwriter. What is it? He says, well, um, I've got this song. It goes like this. <clears throat> Bus stop, wet day, she's there, I say Bus stop, wet day, she's there, I say Be shell my umbrella Bus stop, bus go, she stays, love grows Under my umbrella All that summer we enjoyed it Wind and rain and shine That umbrella we employed it 
Me and Alan Clark looked at each other and we knew what we could do with that song. We actually turned it into a monster hit. We get up to leave. We asked him if we can have it. He said, yeah, great. We've got a song to do. That's fantastic. We get up to walk. And as we're leaving, I think Alan Clark said, uh, do you have anything else? <laughs> he says, okay, I, I, I've got this song called Don't Look Through Any Window, yeah. And we said, okay, for the third fucking time, do you have anything else? <laughs> he said, well, I wrote this song this morning, but I gave it to my friend Peter. Peter Noon has got this band called Herman and the Hermits, and it's called No Milk Today. Now listen, we had no need to go down to that kid's house, but look what happened. Because you made a decision to turn left instead of right. Our life is full of choices, and we have to make the right choices. But that is, in particular, was amazing. I mean, the guy also wrote Heart Full of Soul for the Yardbirds. He wrote, you know, I mean, great. He wrote, I mean, he, he, he made a band called 10CC, right? That's Graham Goulman, right? 15, amazing story. 15 years old. Gave you yeah, two he hits was 15 that, years old. Gave you two hits that one day, 15 years old. Yeah, well, three if you count uh, <laughs> the one for Herman. <laughs> and Bus Stop was your first top 10 in America. Yes, it was, yeah. And when you came back to America after that song became a hit, did you notice a difference? Yes. What was yeah. that like? Well, you know, the truth is we, we loved, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I, when I first came to America, I never wanted to go back to England. You know, uh, there, were, there was a, a big garbage strike and there were piles of garbage in Bar Berkeley Square in London and, and the place seemed to be falling apart. And there was this new country that loved us. You know, I mean, you know, if you didn't know John, Paul and George and Ringo, you weren't shit in, in England at that point. Right. But when when we came here, I think we stayed at the Holiday Inn on West 57th Street and uh, the, the concierge calls me. He goes, uh, there's a guy here w wants to uh, know if you're here. And I said, who, who is it? What's his name? And I hear the guy put his hand over the phone. And came, ah, he says his name's Paul Simon. <laughs> I said, and we just recorded I Am A Rock, and I think Paul really liked it. So I go down, talk to Paul. Him and Arthur invited me and, and were so friendly and so great to me. Uh, they took me to the uh, CBS in the Black Rock there where they were recording. I watched them record uh, part of uh, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme. That album, beautiful, beautiful bookends. Wow, what an incredible title also. Anyway, uh, they were... They wanted to know what I, want, what I had. What is it about all this? What is it about the British invasion? What's going on in England? They wanted to know. Whereas in England, like I said, if you didn't know John and Paul, who the fuck were you, right? So I, I loved this country. They accepted me, you know? And, and, and that's, that's, that was very important in my life. What about the fact that you grew up listening to music from America? Yeah. Where you mentioned Gene Vincent, Bebopalula. Yeah. The Everly Brothers were a big influence. Big influence. I have a couple of Everly Brothers stories, if you're interested. 
Obviously, you all know who the Everly Brothers are, right? Hopefully. Yes, hopefully. I was 15 years old. Uh, me and Clarky um, were going to a Catholic schoolgirls dance on a Saturday night. I remember distinctly walking down these stairs, giving my ticket to the young lady that was collecting tickets. You Send Me by Sam Cooke had just finished playing, and that's a slow dance. And of course, all the teenagers were feeling themselves up, obviously. When the lights came on, they all scattered like cockroaches. Uh, but the dance floor was free, and me and Clarky saw Norma Timms. Never forget Norma, because we both wanted Norma. But there she was across, so we go across the dance floor. Halfway across the dance floor, Bye Bye Love by the Everly Brothers came on full blast, and I've never been the same since, right? 1962, the Everly Brothers are going to play Manchester. Me and Clarkie decide that not only are we going to go to this show, but we want to meet the Everly Brothers. Now then, two things happened. One, there was no tour bus, so they weren't leaving the show that night and going to the next city. Uh, and two, the best hotel in Manchester was 100 yards away from where they were playing, so we figured, hey, maybe that's where they're staying, right? So we waited in the rain and the cold for three, almost three hours. And at 1.20 in the morning, they came walking around the corner and they'd been at a club, one of these clubs I was talking to you about earlier where they sold booze after hours. And they were not drunk, but they, they, they'd been having a good time. And it was just them, just them too. And on the steps of the Midland Hotel is Don Everly, Phil Everly, me and Alan Clark. And we were kids, and we said, we want to be like you eventually, and we'd, we'd love to, uh, to make records and stuff like that. I mean, that would be really fantastic. And they, they stayed and talked to me and Alan Clark that felt like hours. It was probably less than five minutes, but it <laughs> felt like hours. And it changed my life. It changed my life because they remembered my name, and they called Alan Clark Alan, you know. And I realized all my life that when you meet somebody that is important in your life, and they take the time to remember your name, that's incredible. And that's what happened. Okay. 1966. The Hollies are playing the London Palladium in London. Pete Seeger was the headliner. After sound check, phone rings backstage. Our road manager picks it up. He goes, yeah? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, he's right here. Hold on. I say, who is it? Don't just hand me a phone. Who is it? He said, it's Phil Everly. I said, don't fuck with me like this. This is not, that's not. He said, it's Phil Everly. And so, hey, hi, Graham, it's Phil. Phil, okay, hi, how are you doing? He said, well, me and Don are in town and we want to make a start making a record and do the Hollies have any songs that we could record? And we had about a dozen songs, right? We go down to the Ritz Hotel. We played, me and Alan Clark and, and Tony Hicks played them uh, the 12 songs. They chose six of them. And the next day, we started recording Two Yanks in England, which was the title of the album, with the Everly Brothers. Session men. Reggie Dwight on piano. That's Elton John, by the way. Elton John. John Paul Jones on bass. And Jimmy Page on guitar. And they were all... Session men. Not a bad band. Not a bad sound. So then, so I've got one more, one more thing. Actually, two. In 1992, I'm in Toledo, Ohio, to do a show the next day. CSN always used to get to a place the day before so we could acclimatize, etc. 
And my phone rings in the hotel room, and it, that's unusual because pe people know I don't like people calling me. It was Phil. I said, Phil, why the hell are you calling me in Toledo, Ohio? He said, well, you know where you're playing tomorrow with the boys? I said, yeah. He said, we're playing there tonight. Do you want to come to the show? Are you kidding? Me and my friend Matt get on the bus with the Everly Brothers and we drive to the thing. And at five o'clock, like every other rock and roll band, we're eating rubber chicken, you know, for dinner. And Don looks at me and he goes, what are you going to sing with us? I'm fucking dying inside. I'm dying inside. It's been a dream of mine to sing harmony with the Everly Brothers. That's how I learned to sing. And I said, I'm trying to be cool. I go, um, so sad. I love that song, so sad, you know. And Don said, you dun, 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 that one? I go, yeah. He goes, in E, is that okay? I go, sounds good to me. So Phil looks at me and he goes, okay, I'll sing underneath Don. You take my part. I say, why? He says, because I have the high part. I said, Phil, this is, don't forget, this is 90, 1992. I said, Phil, look who you're talking to. I learned to sing high with you and Don. You stay where you are. I will sing on top of both of you. I have a cassette, a board cassette, of me singing So Sad with the Everly Brothers three-part that kills me to this day. It breaks my What a story, right? So the Hollies kept having hit after hit, just some titles, Pay You Back With Interest, Stop, 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 On a Carousel, Carrie Ann, King Midas in Reverse, your song, Jennifer Eccles, but you left the Hollies in 1968. I did, and I'll tell you why. There's a difference between smoking dope and drinking beer. There's a big difference. Your mind is different, I'm sure that you all know exactly what I'm talking about. I wrote a song in Split in Yugoslavia called King Midas in Reverse, and we made a pretty good record of it. It only got to the top 30, and normally the Hollies things got into the top 10, you know? So they started not to trust my musical direction. As a matter of fact, somewhere in the bowels of EMI is a tape of the Hollies recording Marrakesh Express, which I hope you never hear. Anyway. Um, we played the last show with the Hollies on December the 8th in 1968. Crosby was there. It was at the London Palladium again, the place we talked about earlier. And Crosby loved the song. I played the last show with the Hollies in December the 8th. And on December the 10th, I was in Los Angeles with David and Stephen because I had heard us sing together. When we sang together in Joni's living room, in early 1967, here's what happened. I, I was going to, I, was, I came from London to spend four days with Joni Mitchell, who was my girlfriend at the time. I got to, the, to her house in Laurel Canyon, get out of the cab. There's other people in, the, in her house, and I'm kind of pissed because I just wanted to be with Joan, right? But it was David and Stephen. 
So I go in there. Had you met them before? I'd met Crosby before and Stephen earlier, but we had never, ever made music together. This night, David had been thrown out of the birds. The Buffalo Springfield had broken up, and Stephen and David were trying to find a, a, a duo thing, right? And so they'd been rehearsing these songs. David said, hey, Stephen, play Willie that, so well, that song that we were just doing. And it was a song called You Don't Have to Cry from the first Crosby, Stills and Nash record. They sang the song in a beautiful two-part harmony, and I said, Stephen, that's a fucking fantastic song. Would you play it again? And they did it again for the second time, just Stephen on his acoustic guitar picking and, and their two voices. They got to the end of the second time they did it, and I said, okay, bear with me. Sing it one more time. In the two times that they did it before, I knew my part, I knew my harmony, I remembered the words, I knew what Crosby's body language was, I knew when Stephen was taking a breath and when he would finish a breath. When we put our voices together for the very first time, it was that sound. Whatever sound our three voices made by making our three voices into one voice was that fantastic sound. And it was so ridiculous to us that we had to stop the song and start laughing. It was ridiculous. Can you imagine? We didn't have to rehearse. That was the first time we ever sang, these three guys ever sang together, and it was magic. In the morning, when you rise, do you think of me and how you left me crying? Are you thinking of telephones and managers and where you got to be at noon? I knew at that point I'd have to go back to England. I would have to leave the Hollies. I left my family, my friends, my money and my equipment and came to America with my guitar and I never went back. Amazing. The story of the three of you harmonizing together in Joni's living room for the first time is legendary. Was anyone, was Joni there? Or? Only Joni. She was the only witness. And what'd she say? Well. <laughs> I tell, I'll tell you exactly. I looked at, after we finished, you know, we started the song, we got, in, you know, just after the first chorus, we, we started laughing, we picked the song up again, got to the end, and I looked at Joan and I said, Joan, did that happen? And she looked at me, she said, that happened. She was the only witness to the birth of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Amazing. Now, it's funny how you... Everybody has their own truth, right? To Stephen Stills, it was at Mama Cassie's house. <laughs> right? And Mama Cass was instrumental in bringing us together. I, there's no doubt about it. I think that she understood what, what the three voices would sound like before we'd even sung. Wow. And she had introduced me to David. Let me tell you the story of that. The Hollies were being thrown a party by Liberty Records you know, all, the, all those years ago. And it's one of those parties where you have a, a plastic glass and some cheap wine and you're trying to remember the fucking promoter's wife's name and, you know, you hope that, you right? One of those parties. This kid comes up to us. He's 15 years old. And he knew everything that the Hollies had done. He knew every 
A side, every B side. He even know, knew that we had done a Shell Oil ad in 1964, which we are trying to keep under, you know, but he knew, right? That was pre-internet, by the way. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And he, he said, so what are you guys doing? And you know that kind of funny thing where everybody takes a step back and it looks like you step forward? That's what happened. And I looked at the kid and I said, I, 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 um, I don't know, what are you doing? He says, well, I have these friends that are recording a record down the street. I, thought, I wondered if you wanted to go. I said, maybe, who is it? He said, they're called the Mamas and the Papas. And I, so I said, yeah, I'd absolutely like to come down to the studio and see what's going on here. When I got there, John Phillips and Denny Doherty and, uh, and Michelle were putting on a vocal track, so I couldn't go in the studio. The red light was on, of course. Uh, and I'm talking with Cass, right? So I introduced myself, la, 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 la. I'm a friend of Rodney Bingenheimer, who was the 15-year-old wow. kid who then became an incredibly famous DJ in Pasadena on, on KROQ, right? Rodney on the Rock, of course. Yeah. And I'm talking with Cass, and she asked me a question, and I answered it, and I look up, and she's in tears. I, I was shocked. Here's what happened. She asked me what I thought John Lennon would think of their music. And I said, well, you know, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, John's best friend, but I do know him, and he, he would probably put you down and keep you away at arm's length until he trusted you to come on in to his personal, right, you know? He would probably put you down. That's when she started to cry, and that's when I realized that she had a big crush on John and did not want to hear that he might not like their music. So I'm a gentleman. I, I, I understood that this lady was crying in front of me for, because of something I said. I, 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 I resolved the situation, and then Cass said to me, so what are you doing tomorrow? I said, what the fuck is it with you Americans? You always want to know what we're doing tomorrow. What, what's the matter with today? Come on, what's going on? She said, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. She picked me up at the Knickerbocker Hotel in her convertible Porsche. I don't know whether you know anything about Los Angeles, but from Hollywood, Laurel Canyon's about 10 minutes away. We drive up the canyon. We come to this house. We go up these rickety stairs, open the door, and there's a room. It's got a carpet on it, it's got a couch, and a fantastic sound system. That's all the furniture that there was. And there was this kid in a blue and white striped t-shirt and a pair of blue jeans, no socks, and he was asking me you know, questions and keeping eye contact with me. At the same time, lying down, he had a shoebox lid full of dope, and he was shaking it, and separating the stems from the seeds from the grass without losing eye contact with me. I thought, wow, that's amazing, that's for sure. And he proceeded to roll the most beautiful, perfect joints you'd ever seen in your life. I really like David. Right? <laughs> so I'm hanging out with David, and he goes, you know, I want, I want you to meet a friend of mine. So David says, my friend Peter Talk, he's having a party at his house up on Mulholland, should we go? I said, yeah, absolutely, let's go. So we go to Peter's house, and we open up the door. All the fucking smoke comes billowing out the door, of course. And I hear this piano being played, kind of Cuban, kind of Brazilian, but really confident. And I look at this kid, and I go to Crosby. I say, hey, shit, he can really play. He said, yeah, that's who I want you to meet. That's Stephen Stills. And that's wow. when we met each other. Amazing. So... Wow. You, <laughs> so, 
how did you decide? Okay, Crosby's going to go first. Nash is going to go last. Still, Crosby, Stills, and Nash could have been Stills, Crosby, Nash. It could, it could have been. But here's what happened. Stephen, with his gigantic ego, and I love him dearly, wanted it to be Stills, Crosby, Nash hyphenated. <laughs> Try and say that. You can't, right? The way it comes off your tongue easiest is Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It's not Nash and Stills and Crosby. It doesn't work, right? So we called ourselves that. But the previous day, our friend Henry Diltz had come to the studio to hear what we were doing, and we realized we didn't have a cover. So we said to Henry, let's just go walking around, and uh, we'll see what we can do. We get to Santa Monica Car Wash, and opposite the car wash is this old house with a couch in front of it. And it kind of, kind of fit the music and the blue jeans and, you know, it, down home, and that, right? So we sit there. We take the picture. So that's that day. That time, Henry was so popular that you could drop off your film at Kodak and you could get it the next morning, right? So we did that, got them the next morning, saw them that afternoon. That's the but photo that right night, there to your, to your left. Ah, yes, yes. That's, the, that's the picture. But you see, we're in the wrong order because we had decided to call ourselves Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So we went, okay, that's easy. This was an easy shot. Let's go back and shoot it in the right order. Big problem. We got to the house, it wasn't there. <laughs> it had been bulldozed into the back of the parking lot. That's why people keep thinking I wrote Guinevere. <laughs> <laughs> so the Hollies were signed to Epic. Yes. Here, and now Crosby, Stills and Nash needs a label. Yes. Did you audition for Atlantic? Did you, not, did you need to audition for Atlantic? When did you meet Amit? Here's what, here's what happened. Stephen, because of his uh, Buffalo Springfield contract with Atco, was already with Atlantic. David, uh, because his company was the, the birds, uh, was Columbia, he had called Clive Davis and told Clive that he, as he'd been thrown out the birds, he just bought a boat. He borrowed some money from Peter Talk. He bought this beautiful, he bought this beautiful schooner in, in, in Miami. And Clive, I, I'm done. I'm not doing any, I'm not writing any more music. I'm out, of, I'm out of the band. I don't care. I'm going to go sailing. Goodbye. Oh, by the way, would you send me my contract? He was lying completely. I told him, told, he told Clive a, a very untrue thing. Clive went for it, so Crosby was free. So Atlantic now have the availability to get Crosby, and they have Stephen, but I'm on an epic. Epic wanted Poco. That's a band. Poco was on Atlantic. Richie Fure, right? With Richie, yeah. And they traded Poco for me. <laughs> and therefore, Ahmet, who had heard us sing and wanted it desperately because he's a very smart man and, and was, and I, I miss him terribly, to, even to this day. Uh, but it was Ahmet that kept, that kept uh, everybody away from us. And, and, I, and when I say that, I'm talking about the legal department because we signed a contract initially in 1969 for six albums and we didn't complete those six albums until 83, <laughs> right? But instead of the legal people coming after us and saying, you owe us an album, one a year, Armut would say, leave them alone. 
They work at their own pace. I'm sure whatever they give us will be fabulous. Just leave them alone. And if it wouldn't, wasn't for Ahmet, it would have been very different. Ahmet was a true, true music lover. There he is, right up there, if you can see Yes, him. he is. Is it true that Crosby, Stills & Nash auditioned for Apple Records? We were pretty proud of what we could do. We would go to friend's house with a couple of acoustic guitars and blow their fucking minds. We would sing that entire first album right in their living room, right to their face, and we were good. And people really, really loved it. So one day in, in London, I called my friend Peter Asher, and I told him, you know, he, he obviously, we'd known each other because he knew what the Hollies were and Peter and Gordon and all that stuff. And I said, you know, we've got this new sound, you know, do, do you want to come and hear it? Great. He makes an appointment to come down the next day to our apartment in London on Moscow Road and uh, brought George with him. You know damn well that we wanted to be great. It's George Harrison. I mean, we knew Peter and it was, we had respect for him, but this was George, right? So we were good. We came to the end of it. They didn't like it. And I have never known why. And we did the same thing for Paul and Arthur. And they also turned it down. Why? A threat? Competition? I don't know. How the fuck can you hear what we did and <laughs> refuse it? I mean, seriously. When did you guys start working with uh, David Geffen and Elliot Roberts? Right from the very beginning. I was from a different country, so I, di I didn't quite know immediately w what the scene was, you know. But it was Crosby that realized that we would have to have a shark. And we wanted the biggest shark in the world. And at the time, there's this kid called David Geffen. We had a, a, a meeting with him. And I walk into his office on the 34th floor of this incredible building. And the first thing I see is that he has no desk. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. No desk. He's not like going to sit on a seat six inches higher than you to make you feel, you know what I mean? He had no desk. I didn't know it wasn't even his fucking office. <laughs> it was somebody else's office who had gone to lunch and Geffen used it for a half hour to meet with us, right? So that, that's how we got Geffen. And Elliot, who had managed Neil and Joni, uh, became a, our real manager. I mean, David took care of business, but Elliot was our guy, you know? So that's how we got with Elliot and, and, and David. When the first album came out on Atlantic, it was, was it an instant success right away? Yeah. And the first single was Marrakesh Express. Yep. Which you had said that you showed to the Hollies. That's right. Here's what happened. The Hollies version had no passion. It hadn't, they didn't care about it, and it shows. You can, a musician can hear it. There's, these people are not interested in making this a great, a great thing. When Crosby heard the song, he said, hey, they're the crazy ones. Just wait. Just wait till we get to Los Angeles. And we cut the track for uh, Marrakesh Express, and Stephen had this idea. It needed a train, because it's about a train, right? And... Uh, he looked at me and Crosby and he said, you know what? Why don't you and Cros just go get a burger? <laughs> I said, and whenever Stephen says that, you know that he's got an idea in his mind, but he wants to do it by himself you know, we, we, to focus on it, right? We came back an hour and a half later and Stephen had put on two guitar tracks. That's Stephen on guitar, double tracked, right? 
That's what he had done. He had brought the life to it. Stephen Stills is a fucking genius, man. <laughs> yeah, Stephen. That's Stephen on B3, too. And bass. What was your inspiration to write the song? To write the song? In 66, I decided that I would follow the American beat poets. Ginsburg, William Burroughs, those people. It seemed that what they were doing was getting really high in Marrakesh, smoking a lot of dope and writing poetry. And I thought, why not? So I took a train, you know, flew to the north coast of, uh, of Africa, uh, went to Casablanca, uh, went around the Kasbah, of course, and all that stuff, took a train to Marrakesh. I was in a first-class compartment with these uh, two older American ladies who had their gray hair dyed blue, which was really interesting to me. I'd never seen that before in my life. Um, and it was quite boring, frankly, in, in the first-class compartment. Um, so I started to wander and I went back to the third class compartment where it was party time. People cooking food, uh, you know, ducks and pigs and chickens running all over the place, pouring mint tea from four feet in the air into a small cup. I mean, that's where it was happening. And I'd spent about an hour or so there, soaking it all up, and went back and uh, wrote Marrakesh Express. Hope the days that lie ahead, bring us back to where they've led. Listen up to what's been said to you. Would you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express? Would you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express? They're taking me to Marrakesh all on board the train. All on board the train. And as a matter of fact, about four months ago, I found my original lyrics. Wow. I found a little notebook that I'd taken with me and, 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 and written uh, Marrakesh Express on. Wow. When you think of that first um, CSN album, it's just classic after classic after classic. When you were showing each other the songs, when Stephen showed Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, what, what was your response when you heard that? I thought he time? was from fucking Mars. <laughs> I had no idea that somebody could do that. Uh, I don't know whether you know anything about Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, but it's seven and a half minutes long. A few years ago, a guy called John Colosurdo, who lives in New Jersey, called me through a friend. And he said, I have this tape that you, you should, I've been trying to give it to Stephen for 40 years, but every time I try and approach him, his managers think that I'm trying to serve him with a subpoena or something and, and, and shove me out of the way. And he should have this. And I said, well, what is it? He said, well, I was at this studio and I was rehearsing in my band and I, I went to smoke a joint outside and I went into the back and in the back of this place in the parking lot was this huge dumpster and the dumpster was full of tapes. And I, he said, I went to the owner of the studio. I said, what's going on? He said, well, we're out of business. So I'm just throwing it all away. And he said, well, can I, can I go through it? Help yourself. I don't give a shit. So this kid went through these tapes and he found one that said Steve Stills. Now, Steve Stills was Stephen, of course, and he's never been called Steve Stills, so it's a really early thing. So that was the first clue, and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. This tape, here's what happened. Stephen was going out with Judy Collins. Judy was recording at the studio. She'd done the afternoon session. She wanted to go to dinner. Stephen said, I don't want to go to dinner. 
can the engineer stay behind and just let me put a few things down on tape while you're at dinner? No problem. This tape has 19 songs on it. He'd go, helplessly hoping, and he'd get to the end of that song, which was in four sections that hadn't been combined yet. Right, and he'd go in and tune it down, change, 19 things. Now then, this was recorded in August. The Springfield had broken up in May. So May, June, July, August, three months, three months, 19 songs, 12 of them, the classics that you know from Stephen Stills. Unbelievable. So I had it, and because of some technical reasons where the glue that they put the oxide to the tape, uh, there are certain tapes where it fails, right? So you don't know whether that tape that you've, that's precious can play. And you really only have one shot at it. So you have to set everything up, all your digital recorders, and, and, and hit it and hope that it plays, right? And it did. So. I, took the, I said to Stephen one day, I called him, I said, uh, this was Saturday, I said, what are you doing tomorrow morning? Now I know what Stephen's doing on Sunday morning, he's watching every football game that ever was played, right? He's a football fan, right? He said, uh, why? I said, well, I, I, I want to come and see you, I've got something for you, right? He said, well, okay, why don't you come at 12, because that's when the Jets finish playing. Okay, okay, why don't you come at 12? I said, fine, I'll see you at 12 o'clock tomorrow. Five minutes goes by, my phone rings again. He goes, you're not coming to take me away, are you? <laughs> I said, no, no, no. Stephen, I would never do that. I have something for you. And I gave him the tape, and it came out as uh, just roll tape, an entire album, just as it was. of the success of this first album, Crosby, Stills, and Nash becomes Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Yes. Why? You guys were doing just fine. Well, not only were we doing just fine, but we had invented this vocal blend that was totally unique, right? Um, but as I said, on that first record, Stephen played a lot of the instruments. We had our drummer, Dallas Taylor, so the drums were covered, but Stephen played lead guitar, some rhythm guitar, he played B3 organ, he played piano, he played bass, he played percussion. That's how we made that record. There was just the three of us, right? When we finally mixed the final two track and gave it to Ahmet, we realized that it, A, it was gonna be a hit, and B, that if it was a hit that we thought it was gonna be, we'd have to go on the road, but what do you do when one person played it all? Now, of course, me and Crosby played rhythm guitar on my songs, you know, Lady of the Island, Marrakesh, and Pre-Road Downs, and he played guitar on Long Time Gone, and Guinevere, and almost, you know, right? But man, we got to the end of, of making that record, and we knew it was going to be a hit, but what do we do when we want to go live, when Stephen played all the instruments? We cut to New York, 
David and Stephen are at dinner at Ahmet's house. And Ahmet said, hey, Steve, I, I, I know who you should get, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, Ahmet, who should we get? This is David and Stephen, right? Neil. What? Stephen says, Neil, I just went through two fucking years of madness with this kid. He didn't turn up for shows. He wouldn't do the Ed Sullivan show. La, 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 la. What do you mean, Neil? I know it's going to be tough, man, but Neil's the guy. So then David and Stephen come back from New York to Los Angeles, where I was, and they said, we, we, we want to uh, ask Neil Young to join. I said, well, I know that Neil's a great writer, and he's certainly a, a, a ridiculously good singer. I've never met him. How can I invite somebody into this band and fuck with this incredible blend? Because three-part is very different than four-part as you all know, right? I said, I, I don't even know whether I can be his friend, whether I can trust him, whether I can get drunk or high with him. Who is Neil Young? I, I need to meet him before we invite him to join what we've done. We'd already done the first CSN record, of course, and we were on top of the world, right? And I said, I've got to, I've got to hang out with Neil before we do this. I had breakfast on Bleecker Street with Neil Young. I would have made him king of the world after that breakfast. <laughs> he was incredibly funny. He, was, he had a dark sense of humor. And I said to him at the end of the breakfast, I said, okay, why should we invite you into this band, Neil? And he looked at me and he said, have you ever seen me and Stephen play guitar together, man? And I had, and I said, okay. And he, he joined the band. And what is not known is that Crosby, Stills and Nash never did a Crosby, Stills and Nash show until 1977. It was all with Neil before that. And is it true that as Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, a CSNY, your second show ever was Woodstock? Yeah, the first show was at the Auditorium Theater in Chicago on August the 10th, I think, something like that. I mean, we were ballsy. We had Joni Mitchell open for us. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> anyway... Uh, and there was a 15-year-old kid who saw that show at Chicago and wanted to do what we did, and his name was Dan Fogelberg. Wow. Anyway, the 15-year-old kids in yeah, this story. No kidding. <laughs> um, and the next, uh, the next time we ever played, in, the second time only that we ever played in front of people was Woodstock. Amazing, really. What was that like? I was, ha I was very happy. I mean, I, I mean, although we had the Hollies had never played to anybody, you know, and, and, you know. Uh, uh, audience that big but we'd played some pretty big shows and we'd gone through all the you know screaming girls tearing your tie ripping your shirt we'd been through all that right so i was cool it was steven that was a little nervous he's the one that said we're scared shitless <laughs> um but i it was just another show to me but it was tough playing you know something like guinevere with one acoustic guitar you know and two voices to a half a million people but uh woodstock was was good but i'll tell you this if all the people that told me that, uh, in, the, in the, you know, the years since that they were actually at Woodstock were really there, the planet would have tilted, <laughs> I'm telling you. When did you hear Joni's song for the first time, Woodstock? Joni and I had a suite at the Carlisle Hotel here, and we had a piano in it. Now, Joni was supposed to do Woodstock. She was supposed to play on the last night, which was a Sunday. But the next day, she had to do the Dick Cavett show. It was a television show, and it was incredibly important. It was her first major national television, right? 
And so Elliot and Geffen, who managed her uh, and managed us, said, you know, Joan, we, we don't think you'll get out of there in time. Your show's not till Sunday night. If you don't get out of there, you're going to blow the Dick Cavett show, and we, we can't do that. So I'm afraid you, you, you can't go. We, we're advising that you don't go to this Woodstock concert. Stay at the hotel. And so she did. And of course, it was on the news on every channel. There were only three channels, ABC, NBC, and CBS then, basically. And, but Woodstock was all over the place because of how many people were going, right? We got back after the show, and Joan was at the piano, and she'd written this beautiful song called Woodstock. It was slower. It was slightly blue, a little purple, you know what I mean? It was, it was slower, a little minor-ish, you know? And uh, we, she got to the end of it, and Stephen said, um, hey, Joan, can, can we have that song? So Deja Vu, the first Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young album, not only had Woodstock, but two of your songs, Teach Your Children in Our House. I mean, what can you even say about these songs? They've become part of the fabric of, of culture ever since. There was a big difference between the first Crosby, Stills & Nash record and Deja Vu. In the first uh, album, I was with Joan, Stephen was with Judy Collins, and, and David was with his girlfriend, Christine. When we started to do the Deja Vu album, I was no longer with Joan. Uh, Stephen and Judy had broken up, and Christine had been killed in a car accident. And it, it, it's darker. And I know that that's probably what Neil brings most of all, that edge, you know? But it was a, it was a very sad time when we were doing all, all that stuff, because, you know... David was a basket case. His, his partner had just been killed. You know, all she did was taking the cat to the vet and the cat jumped on her and, you know, she tried to get the cat off and she ran into a bus and, and was killed instantly. So it, was, it had a very different kind of feeling because we were all in a completely different place than we were a couple of years earlier when we did the Crosby, Stills and Nash record. It was tough. But there were some really delightful moments, like we had cut the track to teach your children, we put the voices on, it sounded good. We didn't think that like a guitar solo was gonna be good. And we recorded it in Wally Hyder's studio in San Francisco, and he had four studios up there. And I don't know which one, what letter we were in, but let's say that we were in Studio C, the Grateful Dead were in Studio D, and the Jefferson Airplane were in Studio A, right? So we were all there together at the same time for um, at least a month recording a Dead album or a Jefferson Airplane album or the Deja Vu record. And so Crosby called me one day and he said, you know what? Garcia's just started playing pedal steel. I wonder if he'd be interested in, <laughs> in, in putting a solo on Teach Your Children. So I said, okay, I don't mind that. That sounds like a good idea, but do me a favor, play him the song first because you don't want to ask anybody to play on a shitty song, right? I mean, what, what's the point, right? So they played Garcia the track. He loved the song. He set up his pedal steel. He played one track. I said, thanks very much, Jerry. That was fantastic. <laughs> 
He said, well, I, I fucked up in the chorus there. Can I, can I do another take? Absolutely, you can do another take. And I'm telling you, I'll never use it. He said, what? I said, your first attempt at this strange song is so beautiful and so right that that's it. He said, yeah, but, you know, what about that too? I said, I'll, I'll, I'll duck that, you know, that note. Don't worry. So he actually did a second take, but I never used wow. it. Wow. Must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself. And tell us about uh, it's interesting because you're saying that you and Joni Mitchell had broken up, mm -hmm. but and it's a this album is coming from a darker place, with yes. Loss. Yet, our house, yes, is on Deja Vu, a song, yes, that you. Had written it's a legendary story about how that song was written yeah um joni and i uh had gone to breakfast at arts deli on ventura boulevard in los angeles and we finished breakfast and we're walking back to her car because of course i just come to america i didn't i, I didn't drive um so we, we we're walking back to her car and we passed an antique store and we're looking in the window and joni saw a little pretty vase that she wanted to buy about 10 inches high some hand-painted hand flowers around the edge, pretty cheap, so she bought it. Sometimes in the early winter uh, uh, in Los Angeles, I know it's supposed to be the Sunshine State and all that kind of crap, but it, 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 you, you can get miserable, and this was one of those mornings. It was cold, it was foggy, it was rainy, it was miserable, right? We get to her car, we drive to the home in, in Laurel Canyon, and I go through the front door and I said, hey, Joan, why don't I light a fire and you put some flowers in that vase that you bought today. <laughs> Two things. Joni was in the garden trying to find winter flowers to put in this vase. That meant two things. One, she was not at her piano. And two, I was. I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to you play your Our house took me about an hour and a half to write. Were you following the success of these albums? How many albums sold on the first Crosby Stills? Sure. We always wanted to know that. How much money were we making? <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. We, you know. It was, a, it was pretty heavy metal letter, you know, it was full of, you know, Led Zeppelin and, and Jimmy and, you know, but we knew that this kind of acoustic -y kind of album would snake its way right through there and it did. Yeah. I, I read that the first Crosby, Stills & Nash album was so successful, it was certified four times platinum in America for sales of four million albums. Deja Vu doubled that and sold eight million albums. Lucky boys. <laughs> and a great record company to move that much shit. There you go. He's right there, there he is. Let's talk about socially conscious music and okay. songs that were written and recorded in response to things that you and your bandmates were seeing. 
So later that year was Kent State, and Neil wrote Ohio. Do you remember him presenting that song? Crosby called me from Pescadero. Pescadero is a small fishing village in Northern California, and uh, a friend of mine had a small house there that we used to go and, and party at the weekends. And David and Neil were there. I was in uh, Los Angeles with, with Stephen. The phone rang. It's Crosby. Book the studio immediately. Book Halverson. Bill Halverson was our engineer. Book the band. Book it right now. I said, hey, sure. You sound a little intense, Crosby. What's going on? He says, wait till you hear what fucking Neil Young just wrote. I said, really? W what happened? He said, well... We're up here, and I showed him the magazine with the cover of, you know, that, that, that girl leaning over the dead student, you know. And uh, he said, I saw Neil look at it, think, pick up his acoustic guitar, walk into the woods, and came back an hour later with Ohio. He says, wait till you hear this song. Book the studio now. I did. They came down the next day. Armit was there. We recorded uh, Ohio in three takes. We overdubbed the vocals. We then realized, of course, that we wanted to put it out as a single, so we needed a B-side. So we uh, quickly did a song of Stevens called Find the Cost of Freedom, right? Which he had actually written for Easy Rider, but it was, it was rejected. We recorded it. We mixed it. We said to Armour, put this out immediately as fast as you can. And Ahmet understood what we meant, that we were killing our own children because they had the God-given right to protect what their government was doing in their name, particularly Nixon and Kissinger and the secret bombing of Cambodia, which is what the students were protesting about. We gave it to Ahmet. We told him we want it out immediately, and Ahmet said, well, yeah, yeah I, I can do that, but you have your song, Teach Your Children, going up into the top 30. What do you want to do? We said, kill it. We killed our own single. That was how important it was to us. And to this day, nobody has apologized to the families of those four kids. Mm. No one. No one has admitted to putting live ammunition in those rifles. Somebody did. You know damn well that somebody gave permission to do that. Crazy. Anyway, that's, that's what happened with Ohio. Twin soldiers and Nixon's coming. We're finally on our song and the response to the release of that song, did it inspire you as a songwriter? No, I'd already written uh, Chicago, I'd already written Military Madness, I'd already written Immigration Man. So you were, you were all coming from the, the same place. Yeah, musicians are supposed to reflect the times in which they live. You have to talk about what the fuck is going on so that people historically looking back can see, oh, that they did that because that happened. Wow, you know, and, and in, in a small way, that's how history is written. But you have, to, you have to be very careful, you know, because we've finally realized that in selling millions and millions of records that you're actually talking to people. And that's one of the things we wanted to do always. 
we always wanted to let people think about stuff that they didn't necessarily want to think about it. And it started with Long Time Gone. When, when, when David knew about Robert Kennedy being, being assassinated, he wrote Long Time Gone that night, right? So that, that was, in a, in a way, a, a protest song. always wanted to reflect uh, what was going on around us. I mean, what's, um, what's amazing and, and kind of scary is that you mentioned Immigration Man, which was a song that you and David released in 1972. And look at us now, 45 years later, and that hey, lyric the, can't be more timely. Well, the truth is that, it, that, that it, it's both thrilling and a piss-off. Because I, I, you know, Chicago and, and, and military madness and, and immigration men. Um, I'm glad that the music has lasted this long, but it pisses me off to have to keep singing it. And like Peter said, is immigration men relevant today or what? They're keeping fucking children from their mothers and blaming the Democrats and then putting it in a biblical sense and saying it's the law. Fuck them. They have no fucking heart. You know what? 48% of the people in this country that could, could vote, were registered to vote, didn't. 48%. Now, some of them must have thought that Hillary was a foregone conclusion that she was going to win, so why should I vote, right? She's going to win by millions against Trump, right? 48%. You know, in some countries, people get killed because they voted. When you put your finger in that little purple ink and say, hey, hey I voted, there was a bullet waiting for you. 48%. And look what the fuck happened. This is insane. I've never seen this country like this. I've been here 50 years through many, many presidents. I've never seen anything like this. This administration is being run completely on greed. He has no interest in the American people whatsoever until they're paying him money. Are you inspired to pick up, are, are you inspired to pick up a pen and write a song about that? Are you still writing? Obviously, I've been trying, but there is so much wrong with this administration. Where do you start? Where, where do you, what, what problem do you, do you start to talk about? You know, putting somebody in the head of the EPA that threatened to destroy the entire agency? Putting somebody like Betsy DeVos in charge of education who has no fucking idea what she's doing? Eric Prince's sister, by the way, did you know that? Anyway, I'm, you can tell I'm furious about this man because he is setting America back 50 years. He is undoing some incredibly important uh, work that people have done socially to give us clean air and clean water. You know, it, 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 I, I can't wait for this man to be gone. And I know that we may have to deal with Pence, but he has his own problems of lying too. You know, and we've got, you know, Sessions, the foremost lawmaker in the world that already has proven to have lied three times under oath and he still has a fucking job? This is not right, folks. 
There's plenty, plenty to write songs about. It's interesting. But I'll tell you one thing I did do. I'm not a painter, but I dabble. I have done 16 paintings of madness out of my anger. 16 of them. They're abstract. There's no figures. There's no portraits. There's no nothing. It's pure paint and pure anger. And these, these 16 pieces that I did show that. So that, that's how I'm dealing with it right now. But I'm slowly be, being able to find the essence of what it is I need to say. Because I have to be very, very careful. I mean, it's very interesting what you said before, is that songs like Ohio and For What It's Worth and Immigration Man spoke to an era. And when you're looking back historically, you can see the commentary, the social commentary through music. Conversely, if it's not talked about, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, if people look back on this era, where are the songs? Where are, are our poets? I tell you, I'll tell you where they are. They're still there. But here's what happened. The people that own the world's media, you could count on two hands. They don't want you to rock the boat. They don't want you to disturb the status quo. They want sheep. Lie down, shut the fuck up while we rob you and sell you another cola and another pair of sneakers. And that's what's going on in this country. And you take that and you expand, in, you expand it through all the corporations that are running all this stuff. They don't want protest songs on their radio or television or in their magazines. But, for instance, if you go to Neil Young's Living With War page, you'll find 3,000 protest songs. You'll never hear them because they don't want you to hear it. You can't, you didn't, you never heard anything about Grenada. You never heard anything about Panama. You couldn't even photograph the flag covered coffins of the people that were killed. That's how much they want to keep all this shit from you. Your job is to ignore that, find the truth and say something about it. Back to the band for a sec. The, um, obviously, with four strong personalities, there's going to be spats. So the band is on again, the band is off again. Um, it's patient, so you can do your six albums whenever. 1977, just a song before I go. Is it true that there was a wager? Oh, yeah, here's what happened. I'd taken a vacation to Hawaii. And I was, it was before I bought my, my, my place in Hawaii. And I was in Maui. And I had a couple of hours to kill before I had to catch a plane to go back to the studio with David and Stephen. And uh, I was at the home of a friend of mine. He was a low-level drug dealer. Uh, just a little pot, nothing, no heroin, no, no coke, no, no heavy stuff. Uh, and he was a friend, but he had no respect for me. And I got up to leave and he said, you know what? You're supposed to be some big shot songwriter. I bet you $500 you can't write a song just before you go. Do you still have the $500? I do. 
He had no idea he had given me the title for the song in the question. It's funny, it's the, that's, that was the biggest single hit that CSN ever had. But I got to tell you that if I knew it was going to be such a big hit, I would have written a better song. <laughs> tell us about Wasted on the Way. Wasted on the Way was my frustration at us. You know, we had all this ability. We had, you know, four fine songwriters and, 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 you know, but we were kept apart by, you know, egos and drugs and girls, you know, and, and we could have made a lot more music. I mean, what, did CSNY only did, what, four albums? I don't know. But we could have made more, and that was my song to them. You know, we're wasting time here. Time is our only currency. Fucking Bill Gates or Zuckerberg can't buy a second of time. That's why we have to use every second the best way we can, because you're going to fucking run out of seconds. I'm 76 years old now. I know I'm at the downslope of my life, but I still will try and use every second I can of my life to make my life better, my family's life better, my friend's life better, and everybody else's too. So you have a new album coming out next week. Yes. Called Over the Years. Yes. Tell us about it. There'd never been the greatest hits of my music with CSN. And, I, you know, I, I wrote most of the singles, right? And so I thought it would be very interesting to, uh, to find out what my fans think their favorite songs of mine are. And I've been doing, figuring that out from all the touring I've been doing about what, what they want to hear and what they shout out and stuff like that. And then I thought, well, but how do I do, how do I make this special? And so... On the, it's a two CD set. The second CD is uh, 15 demos. My first one being my demo of Teacher Children with a, one acoustic guitar I recorded in my apartment in London in, in early 69 or maybe late 68. Um, and so people are very interested to hear that, uh, that original flame of, of creation where you, you, you're, you're desperate to put something down at three o'clock in the morning even though you're drunk, you know? Uh, and those, those things are very important because it's the first time those songs were ever put to tape. And to be able to see the transition from the demo to the record that was made of those songs is very interesting and people are really loving it. Is the demo that you include of Marrakesh Express? Yes. Was that Holly's era Marrakesh Express yes. demo? See, now everybody wants to go and hear this record, right? Looking at the world through the sunset in your eyes Traveling the train through clear Moroccan skies Ducks and pigs and chickens call Animal carpet wall to wall American ladies five foot tall in blue Sweeping cobwebs from the edges of my mind had to get to wait to see what we could find. And obviously, we could sit here for hours, you know, talk about your photography and, and your digital fine art printing and the, what were we talking about earlier? What is the, uh, 
Yeah, oh, the daguerreotypes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I collected photography for, for, for many, many years, and I actually sold, sold my collection at Sotheby's in, in uh, 89 uh, for, uh, you know, several million dollars. And I, I utilized that money to form a company called Nash Editions. And we were the first atelier in the world for, for printing inkjet prints of, uh, of famous photographers and artists. We invented the word gicle. I fucking hate it. It's a French word meaning to come. It's an awful, but it's to spray, right? I swear to God, I'm not kidding. Um, anyway, we still make the, the finest digital uh, prints in the world. Our first printer that I used, which was an Irish 3047, which was $124,000. I bought one immediately and voided the warranty in the first 10 minutes because I didn't give a fuck. I saw this machine printing stuff and I thought, holy shit, this is going to change the world. So I went to see a demo of it. Al Lucchese, who was the president of Irish Graphics at the time, was there. I said two things. Does this machine print black and white? His reply was, I spent $30 million making the best color printer. You want to do black and white? I said, yeah. And secondly, and more importantly, I want the inks to last more than 10 minutes. Because if you buy a thing for $100, you want it to last, right? And so we started Nash Editions, and you know it's still there, still doing the same thing. But we were the very first thing. And that first printer of ours, it's now in the Smithsonian Museum. Are you as passionate about music still as you were when you were the boy growing up with uh, Alan Clark in England? What do you think? <laughs> I can't lose that passion. Music is magic, man. Do I can't lose it, I've, and I've tried. <laughs> I've tried not doing it. I've tried. I can't. Things happen in my head. I see something that I need to talk about. I, I, I have to feel something before I can write about it. Because, you know, when you're writing and talking to people, you can't fuck up, right? I mean, I, it, it took me, what, an hour and a half to write Our House? It took me four years to write Cathedral, right? Because when you're talking about God and people's relationship to the Almighty, you better have every word right or else they're going to come down on your ass, you know? So... Hey, here I am. I still have the same passion. Is there any contemporary music that you listen to that you're inspired by? For the last 10 years, I've been completely involved in the archive of the three of us and the four of us. It was Warner Brothers uh, at one point who thought that they owned everything that we'd ever done. And I pointed out to them, if they read their contract correctly, you own every album that we delivered and that you paid for. God bless you. You own them. Fantastic. But my recording of me and Crosby in my bathroom in Encino, that's not yours. We finally figured that out. So for the last 10 years, I've been completely involved in the music of Crosby, Stills and Nash and, and, and Neil. And, uh, but good music will make it all the way through. And I'll give you an example. My girlfriend, Amy Grantham, said to me the other day, have you seen this song called This Is America by Childish Bambino? <laughs> what an awesome piece of art. What an awesome song. What an awesome video. You know, speaks right to the heart of exactly what he's talking about. So good music will find me, but I don't particularly seek it. And, and you mentioned earlier that you and Alan Clark are still friendly. Absolutely. It took, it took 15 years, but yes. And can you say the same thing about David, Stephen, Neil? Say what about them? That 
you're, that we're still friends? Yeah. I'm still friends with Stephen and Neil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I talked Say to no Stephen. More. I talked to Neil. You know, I had breakfast at the Carlisle a couple of months ago with Neil. I haven't spoken to David Crosby in over two and a half years, and I called him every day for 45 years. The loss of the music is very sad to me, but we have to like each other before we can make good music together. And I don't like him right now. He has done things to me in this last couple of years that have been unforgivable. And uh, I'm finding it very difficult to even talk to him. But the music lives on. The music will live on. And we're all individually making music together. And if CSN and CSNY never made another note of music, look what we did in 50 years. Look what you did in 50 years, right? Artists create because they have to. We have no choice. Pisses me off sometimes, but <laughs> it's the way it is. And I'm really glad. And thank you so much for listening to Graham me. Graham Nash, everybody. Thanks again to Graham Nash for spending time with us this week. You can visit his website at grahamnash.com to see his upcoming tour dates, learn more about his incredible photography, and to connect with him on social media. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.